Philippians chapter 3 this morning is where we'll be. We'll look at verses 12 through 21. When I was 13, 14 years old, I had this dream and I told my family about it and it was just something I really wanted to become. And I was just bent that I, on the idea that I was going to be an NBA basketball player. Why are y'all laughing? What's funny about that? Thank you. He believes in me. I appreciate that. Um, 13, 14 years old, that is what I wanted to be. I was uh, obviously a prospect. I was barely five foot tall, about 80 pounds, and averaged four points a game in my junior high team. But I was certain that I was going to get picked up at least by the Charlotte Hornets or someone like that, right? And so what I wanted to do was, man... I was like, I've just got to be coached better. Once I get coached better, I'm going to get the tools that I need to make it to the NBA. And so I begged my dad uh, to put me in a, a basketball camp in the summers, uh, right, right between, I think, my ninth and 10th grade year or my eighth and ninth grade year or whatever it was. And so my dad put me in a basketball camp. And at this basketball camp, we had some Division One players that just finished college or just about to go to the NBA. And a few of the college coaches, I think Coach K was there, a couple of uh, UNC coaches were there as well. And so I got to hear from these coaches, these, these players that were just about to go to the NBA. And it was awesome. Got to hear all these stories. And I remember one of the ones that I really wanted to hear was this player. And if you grew up in, in the 90s like me, um, there was a player named George Lynch. He played for the University of North Carolina right after, and he won the championship in 93 with Carolina. He was a six foot five power forward, which is really small if you're a power forward. If you know anything about basketball, that's, that's pretty short for a power forward. And so somebody asked him, and we're all circled around the three point line. He's in the middle and he's telling us about, you know, how to, how to make it, how to, how to make your dreams come true, all these kinds of things. And so we, um, we, somebody asked him, how did you become successful? And he said, you just have to discipline yourself. You just have to discipline yourself. And so somebody said, well, what, did you, what do you do to discipline yourself? He says, well, on top of practice, I shoot four to 500 jump shots every single day. Now, when you're 13, 14 years old, you're like, I can do that. But you don't understand how much discipline that actually takes. So after the camp, I'm like, okay, I'm going to dedicate myself that after school, every single day, I'm going to shoot three to 400 or four to 500 jump shots a day. So I go in my backyard after the camp, pull my basketball out. And it's that, that you know, that rubber orange one, you know, with all the ACC teams on it that everyone had, had that one. It was really slick. You know, it loses its grip in like a week. And so I'm out there trying to play first jump shot, miss, banks, go off the rim into the bushes. I'm like, okay, that's one. So I run over there to the bushes, get out of the bushes, shoot from the side, air ball goes into the next negative yard. That's two. And after three and four and five, I'm starting to go, okay, 500 is ridiculous, right? And I think I made it to 50, and I kept missing and kept missing, and I said, and that is when the Lord told me that I was going to be a pastor. That's just when I realized that this was not going to work. I'm just kidding. That's not how that happened. But I realized at this point that disciplining myself for the NBA or to be a great basketball player was more than I anticipated. Now, if we're honest, most of us, we do that with 
just about everything that we do in life. We look at something that we want to be or look at something that we want to do and we go to it and we realize how much it actually takes and how much it re- requires of us to do it. And sometimes that talks us into doing it or it talks us out of doing it. Uh, sadly, many of us even do that with our spiritual lives. And probably the most, most of us do that with our spiritual lives in some way. We say, okay, this is what a godly person looks like. This is what a godly marriage looks like. But we don't understand um, the discipline and the maturity that is required of us to actually accomplish what we have um, in our minds. And so what happens is we can get really discouraged. And, but what Paul does in Philippians chapter three, he gives us a picture of what godly maturity is. And he helps us to see the disciplines that we need to take to get there. Now, when I talk about disciplines, most of you, you freak out by that word because you think, oh great, I've got to learn how to, it's got to be a discipline where I put something in my calendar, read my Bible every single day or pray every single morning and you know, fast once a week or whatever it is. And you think that this is some kind of thing that you have to put in place in order to be mature. But what Paul is going to do in Philippians chapter three is he's not going to show you like a discipline of things that you need to do, but rather it's really a a disciplined mind and a mindset that you need to have uh, around the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at what godly maturity is And we're also going to see the the mindset of what it means to grow um, in maturity. And that's what we see in Philippians chapter 3. But let me give you a little context here of what's happening. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is reminded the church of Philippi where to find the root of godliness. Paul reminds the church that that he's not going to go back to his old ways of of a performance-based religious walk with Christ, that Christ is not interested in the things that we do. He's more interested in our hearts. And so he's not going to go back to that mindset. Um, But what we often think of, and we often think of maturity, is someone who's really put together. And and, and Paul is going to remind us that God is not so much interested in that. And here's the thing, Scripture doesn't even define maturity that way. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we look for maturity based even on someone's age. We don't look for maturity based on how someone looks on the outside. Certainly there's wisdom that comes with age. However, that's not always the case. Maturity doesn't have to be dressed in a three-piece suit and a tie because biblically speaking, maturity is really a matter of the heart. Maturity is a mindset that is fixated and transformed by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the issue that's happening in, in, in Philippians, that the issue that Paul was really trying to address in Philippians 3, is there were these false teachers in the church called the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were people who looked really put together on the outside. They were kind of a part of this religious elite, and they actually began to add to the gospel. And that's why they were false teachers, because they would say, okay, to be a Christian, you have to, yes, you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave and covered your sins uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection. But then what, what the Judaizers would do is they would also add that you would have to obey the law of Moses, that you would have to obey the old covenant. So you'd have to be circumcised. You had to walk and obey the Sabbath. And you had to do all of these things that, that, that were under the old covenant law. And so they would say, that's how you become a real mature Christian. So everything with the Judaizers is all external. And the problem with that is most of the time when people would see someone like that, they would often think, well, that person looks really put together. That person obeys a bunch of rules. That person is a rule follower. So certainly they're mature when scripture actually says the opposite. Who does Jesus talk the most harsh to in the gospels? 
It's the religious elite. It's the Pharisees who add all the rules to the relationship with God. And the same thing with the Judaizers. On the outside, they look mature, but because their hearts are not truly surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, they're actually immature. And I would even say they're actually not believers. And so what the problem is in our culture is we do the same thing. Because the Judaizers, they look like just good old church folks that have it all together. But church folks are church folks. Church folks look like church folks, but church folks don't often look like Jesus. And that's the problem. What is maturity? Maturity is basically this, when we look like Jesus. And this is why Paul never wanted to go back to his old performance-based relationship with God. He wanted a grace-filled life that lives in freedom And that's what he wants from his hearers as well. This is why he says that he made Christ his own. If you look in verse 7, if you look in verse 9, he says, man, I I get rid of everything for knowing Christ. He says everything else in in verse 8. He says everything else is, is dung considering my relationship with Christ. But this is something that Paul acknowledges that he has already, but it's not yet fully obtained. He's like, I still need to grow even more in my love for Christ. Pick up in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this. He's talking about godly maturity. Not that I've already obtained godly maturity or I I am already perfected, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, this is good news for you if you are in this room and you consider yourself a perfectionist. Paul himself realizes, Paul wrote most of the New Testament and Paul says, hey, I've got some issues. I've got ways in my life that I need to grow up and ways in my life that I need to mature. So I'm pressing on to maturity. He says, I'm not perfect. I have not obtained this yet. And I love Paul's transparency and openness about his weaknesses. Paul says in in 1 Timothy uh, 1 verse 15, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the what? foremost. He sees himself as the chief of sinners. And I love why, how Paul is so transparent because Paul is a man who wants to know his heart. Jeremiah uh, 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And he goes on to say that only God can really know our hearts. And so Paul understands that only God truly knows his heart, but Paul still wants to humbly acknowledge how weak he really is. He says, man, I'm not perfected this yet. I'm not fully mature yet. And so he's a man who wants to know his heart. And this is why even when he talks to the churches, he's always telling the churches to be aware, be alert. He says in in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, therefore, if anyone thinks he uh, thinks, if anyone Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So just because it's difficult to understand the heart doesn't mean that we don't strive to know it. And I think why we resonate so much with books like Philippians and Paul specifically is how open and honest he is. Friends, most of the time when we live in community with other people, we're afraid to be open. Because we think openness leads to judgment. And we know that judgment often kills. 
So if we say, man, if I'm open about, man, this real struggle that I have, this anger that I have, this feeling of desperation that I have, this feeling of loneliness that I have, or this anger that I have, or maybe if I just share that, and I don't know how to control my kids, maybe if I just share that my, my marriage is just not as healthy as I would like everyone to think, then I would be rejected by everyone else. When the reality is, if you're open, it would actually draw more people to you, and it would actually draw better people to you more mature, more godly, more caring, more loving people to you. This is why Paul lives in this transparency and openness. This is why transparency is so contagious. Paul wants to see this level of transparency and this openness to say, man, I'm not as mature as I need to be mature. I need to grow up and that's okay. And so this morning, if if you want to know if you're really mature, my question is, are you transparent? Do people know your weaknesses? Do people know your hurts? Do people know your frustrations? Or do you hide? People who hide aren't mature people at all. They're just like the religious crowd who wants to look put together on the outside and the inside is completely and utterly in shambles. God is interested in us being transparent and open because it displays humility. It displays a need to mature, a need to grow. And then he continues, verse 12. He says, brothers... I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal uh, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now the question is, what does it mean? Because when we read this, it's, it's an interesting verse. What does it mean to forget What's behind? Some people say, well, that means you don't have to work on your past or ever think about your past again or your failures or your losses. Some people will say that, but but that's not necessarily what Paul is after. And in fact, in scripture, specifically with the Psalms, the psalmist tells his hearers to remember things. If if you read Psalm 77, it's just riddled with this idea that we constantly remember. I'll I'll just read a couple of verses for you. In in Psalm 77, verse 5, he says, when I remember God, this is David, when I remember God, I mourn. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Verse 6, he says, when I remember my song in the night, let me meditate in my heart. Verse 11, when I remember the deeds of the Lord, yes, I remember the wonders of old. What is he constantly trying to do? Hey, it's good to remember things. This is really good to remember even hurts and pains in our lives so that we can see um, the grace of God at work. So what does this mean when Paul says forgetting what lies Behind. Here's what he's saying based on the context. He's saying, don't live in the past. Paul is really focused on, in this text, how you need to grow and mature now. It, it, go even further in verse 15. He says, let those who are mature think this way. If anything, if any of you uh, think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've already obtained. And this is a great passage because most of the time we, when everyone, like especially like college town, we see people, they're like, they want, we want new revelation. We want God to show us something obscure and unique in, in scripture that we've never seen before. And so we say, man, I just want something new. I just want something new. And so what would the problem with that is, what about what you already know? Are you practicing what you already know? And so what he's saying, Paul's saying, hey, Practice what you already know. Hold on to 
what you've already obtained. That's what he's saying. Mature now. Look at your life now. And so when Paul is saying to the Philippian church to forget what lies behind, he's not saying have some magical, spiritual, holy amnesia where you can't remember things in the past. Rather, he's telling them to not be defined by their past. Don't be defined by your past failures. And also, listen to this, don't be defined by your past victories either. In other words, Paul was saying, there's nothing in your past that can hinder you from maturing in Christ now. But not only that, he's saying, don't live off victories either. And here's why I think that's important. I mean, a lot of people that they base their growth in Christ, not based on now, but based on something they did 10 years ago. I meet sometimes people in my age or older, I'm like, tell me about your relationship with Christ. Man, I love the Lord. My 20s, I went on a missions trip to Haiti. Awesome. What are you doing right now? Right? Well, I went to this conference. How long was that? Five years ago, Right? Well, I'm a member of this church. When did you join? How was the last time you've been? Man, it's been months, but I love Jesus, right? Everything's based on some victory that they had in the past. But we can't do relationships that way. To say, man, do you love your wife, Ben? Yeah, man, I love my wife. I took her on a date six years ago. <laughs> love my wife. You, wouldn't, you would think it's not real healthy. But we do that with Christ because we live off these past Victories. They were like the Dallas Cowboys. We just live off past victories. We're a great team 20 years ago, right? But that's what we do. I only do that for a few people in here. Um, But we can't do that with our relationship with Christ. So what Paul is saying at the same time, he's saying, don't be beat down by your past failures and don't live off past victories. Rather, he's saying, Now, look at your life now and press forward. He also says, strain forward. In other words, it's a discipline. If you don't believe it's a discipline, remember when you first became a believer in Christ, how easy it was to read the Bible? How easy it was to live in community? How easy it was to share in your faith? And now what happens is it's tougher. It's more difficult. It's a discipline. So he says, what do we, what, here's, here's how we fight through that discipline. We need to look at what we're growing and maturing for. Verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, he impacts it. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you, he's talking about the Judaizers here, and I tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But then he contrasts that. How does a believer live? How does a maturing believer live? He says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So why is, what, what is this whole conversation of maturity about? What's the goal? He says our goal is the upward call of Jesus Christ, which is to have eternal life with Christ. That's what maturity looks like. 
It's running in such a way that we are no longer compelled by earthly treasures, but we're looking forward to a better day with Christ. Notice the contrast. He, he exposes the Judaizers once again. He says, for many of whom I've told you, and, and now I even tell you with tears, he says, man, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Then he goes on, he says, their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory, their shame with minds set on earthly things. What is the, how, does, how do we know that the Judaizers aren't legit? He says, well, they add to the gospel, so they're enemies of the cross. But also, look at their lives. All they care about is worldly success and worldly fame, and that's just not a mature life at all. But he says, but look at the believer. The believer are citizens in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is showing us this momentous step that every believer must take if you want to grow in maturity. It's recognizing where your true treasure lies. It's not in things of the world. It's only in the person and work of Christ. He says, that's, what, that's your aim. That's your goal. You're looking to Christ. And I think the more in Christ that we live, the less we care about what this world has to offer. You ever meet an older person that loves the Lord and you notice that their clothes are from like 25 years ago and they just don't care? They just don't care. They got all beat up Crocs on, right? Big old Cosby sweater. Of course, I'm talking about Kirk Birch now, right? Everyone knows that. And they just live this life that they just don't care. They're not on Instagram, and they don't even know what it is, and they don't even care. And it's beautiful because you say, man, I want that. I want that. But we don't want the discipline to have that. But we like this idea, this freedom of I'm not constrained by this junk in this world that constantly tells me lies. And all of us know it's lies. But we get on Instagram anyway, and we want to hear those lies. We want to see on Instagram the lies that are saying, you can have this perfect life right here on earth. We like to look at the, our Instagram friends and see, what do we see? We see people on vacation with their bae, right? And with bae. I don't do that, but some of you do. Um, find people on vacation. We find people pictures of their well-behaved children, pictures of their spouses or significant others on a date night, with Bay again. But what do we not see? What we don't see is how many pictures it took to get that perfect picture. How many times that you had to put the perfect latte with a little leaf in it besides your Bible and how many takes it got to get the perfect light to show how perfect your time was with God this morning. We don't get to see how many takes that took. We don't get to see how many times that you had to literally threaten your kids to sit there and not blink and to sit still and not hit your brother and all of these things to get this perfect picture of a perfect family. We don't see that. We don't even see the date night that what happened before the picture. We don't see a picture of the fight in of the parking lot argument. We don't see that picture, right? We don't see the buyer's remorse that you have after you pay a ridiculous amount of money for a steak. We don't see that. That's too messy. So what do we do? We say, hey, 
I have this glimpse of perfection. And we go to it and we know that it's a lie. But we still think that it's attainable here. And you know why I think it's, I know it's a lie? It's not just because I know that people are a bit psycho and we want likes and that's how we get affirmation. But it's also the idea that the pictures that we take to show this little segment of perfection, I know that it's a lie because it was taken here on this earth. Perfection does not exist on this earth. It only exists in one place, and that's with Christ. And this is why Paul is so clear. He says, Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And in heaven, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even uh, even to subject all things to himself. I'll be honest with you. I don't know a lot about heaven. Some of you have lost loved ones and you want to know what, heaven is like. I have no idea. And here's why I don't have a clue, because the Bible doesn't talk a lot about it. I know that Christian bookstores, there's tons of books about heaven. There's a lot of speculate. It's mostly speculation or a story about someone who died and went to heaven and came back to tell us about it. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying it it didn't happen. Um, (laughs) But can we just agree that we don't know what we're talking about? Can we just agree that if someone actually could go to heaven and come back, that you see Moses in the Old Testament who just sees a glimpse of the glory of God and his whole countenance changes? Can you imagine what it would be without just seeing a, a shimmer of being in the full presence of God and how much it would absolutely shape our whole being? So when we came back to earth, I don't think we could even speak if we saw heaven, if we saw Christ. The whole idea of streets of gold, the purpose, I think, of streets of gold is not so much that it's just literally gold. I think it's just showing you how the currency here is not the currency there. Tar is what we use to make our streets. Gold is what's made there because it even doesn't matter. And so that's the difference. It's it's beyond what we can think. And I think that's the beauty of it. That's why the Bible is vague about it. That's why it's this mystery. But here's what I do know based on scripture, that everything good, everything enjoyable, everything pleasurable around us is just a tiny glimpse or a shadow of a better day. And I do know that when we see his glorious face, the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we will finally realize that every time we said no to sin, And yes to God, it was worth it. It was worth it. We wait for a better day. And I love this part too. Paul says even our bodies will be transformed. And I love this because every time our bodies in some way shuts down, it reminds us that our citizenship is not here, it's in Christ. I mean, I know that for sure this week more than any because I played basketball on Friday night. And I played with a bunch of small group leaders at our church And they play dirty, by the way, all right? But my knees are killing me. I'm 39 years old, and my knees are killing me. We played four games full court. My knees are killing me. And as my knees are killing me, I acknowledge it's just going to get worse. (laughs) I can ibuprofen this thing all day long. 
That's why I'm a little crazy right now, right? But it's just gonna get worse. I'm not gonna get faster. I'm gonna get slower. Doesn't matter how many times I work, go to the gym, this thing is going to deteriorate over time because my citizenship is in heaven. And then I'm gonna get a glorified body. I'm gonna get a new, knee, new knees. And now I'm actually gonna be able to dunk one day. It's actually gonna happen. But that's the beauty of it. Every time I look for perfection, I'm constantly reminded this world is not my home. Every time I go to the beach and I look at the sunset and I say, man, this is a perfect scene. What happens? I get sunburned. God's like, see, you shouldn't have put your hope here. It's not supposed to be here. But I'm a fair-skinned guy. God gave me fair skin to remind me that the world is not my home. So he's like, yeah, you gotta be careful. The sun's gonna burn you. And when I get to heaven... I won't be weird for having red hair because in heaven, everyone's gonna be red hair because you're all gonna have glorified bodies and you'll finally catch up. So praise God for that. You're welcome. But even on a serious note, pain and death will cease. All of your insecurities, all your worries, all your fears will be no more. And you'll stand in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll acknowledge that Everything in Christ is what you've longed for your entire life. And so maturity is waiting for that day. Maturity is acknowledging, man, there's nothing in this earth that will fully satisfy me. Only Christ, only in Christ will I be fully satisfied. So why not now begin to live the sacrificial life? Why not now begin to live a life that promotes the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is why Paul goes on. He says in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul is saying, hey, if you want a person to emulate, look at people who are doing just that. Look at people who would almost embarrass you with how little they care about what this world has to offer. Put yourself around people that are living the sacrificial life that would promote the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the challenge this morning. Many of us will look around and we'll see mature believers and we'll automatically think and want those things. And we'll say, man, I want that. I want that life. I want the healthy marriage of the husband and the wife who are praying together and they're living in transparency and their realness and their display of affection for one another. I, I want that. I want, I want the kids who respect their parents and they love them and there's this encouraging, nurturing uh, life around a table in a home and we say, man, I I want that. But most of us don't know the discipline that it takes to get there. Many of you are single and you see a couple who loves each other, maybe a friend that just got engaged and they seem so happy and they seem like they're so in love and they seem that they're even so focused on Christ and you want that. But oftentimes we fail to see the discipline that it takes to get there. And most of us can sort of get a vision of maturity that we want, but we have no idea the discipline that it will take to get it. So let me, let me just take you to what this text says. Because my, my, my fear in this is, my fear is this, that you'll want maturity in your life and say, okay, to be mature, I've got to do a bunch of things. I've got to just start going to a small group. I've got to just start giving to the gospel legacy campaign. I've got to pray more. I've got to, you know, it's, it, it becomes like this thing that if I do this and God's going to do this for me, but it's not. Discipline, when I talk about discipline, when this text talks about discipline, it's a mindset of humility around the grace of God. 
How does Paul just talk about discipline? He says that we need to start realizing, first of all, that we saw in the text, he says that we aren't perfect. That you, you don't have it all together and that's okay. And so part of you walking in maturity is walking in that transparency and saying, man, I don't have it all together. Here's where I need to grow up. Here's where I need to mature. And it's gonna be messy, but you'll receive more love in that than you've ever received in your life because finally you'll be walking in humility and maturity. This is why we say it all the time here at Integrity that liars don't have real friends. Because what people do when they put on the facade of spirituality and maturity, when it's not really there, they're not, that people fall, fall in love with the false virgin of you, not the way that you really are. But when you're open and honest about who you are and where you're struggling, then you receive love in spite of how you are. And that's the same way that Christ loved us. So begin walking and realizing where you're not perfect and where you need to mature. So that's, that's what we see, number one, in the text. Secondly, Paul says, don't live in the past. Don't live off past failures or past victories. Look at your life now and make a decision to press forward. And so maybe this morning you're here and you're crippled by something that you've done in your past and you don't think that there's any possibility that you can mature or move past it. But I wanna tell you that there's grace here, that Christ wants to redeem your heart this morning and grow you where your affections are like Paul, that you want Christ to be your own. And part of that's acknowledging the finished work of Christ on the cross when he died for you, when he rose for you from the grave, that he died in your place. That's the life that you should have lived, but you couldn't and you didn't. So Christ lived it for you. That's the death that you should have died and you didn't. That's why Christ died for you, to redeem you and to redeem your past and to redeem your future. So don't live in the past. And Paul says to strain forward toward the goal. He says to be with Christ. And that's our goal this morning. That's why we exist as a church. Because we know that we want to gather believers here, knowing that this world is not our home so that we can make an impact on this world for the gospel. Because we all wait that one day we'll sing together loudly praises to our God and King. And we'll stand in front of King Jesus and we'll realize that everything that we did on this earth for Christ was worth living. And so this morning, if you're here and you need the discipline to live in that, perhaps the discipline for you would be to fight the tendency to earn the praise of men. Maybe the discipline for you would be to shift your desire to spend money on yourself, rather than, but rather than spend your money for the resources that God has given you to further the gospel. Maybe it's just taking an inventory of how much you're living for yourself versus how much you're uh, truly living to serve others and to promote the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's, here's the challenge this morning. None of us are in the clear. Like none of us can walk out of here and say, man, this is, this is good, but I don't struggle here. Like I'm pretty mature. Like if you're walking in that, you did not hear anything we just said. All of us need Maturity. And so it's my prayer that God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, would, would illuminate this passage and perhaps speak to places in our hearts where we're fighting against areas that we need to mature in Christ. And it's my hope that in that, that we wouldn't hear condemnation, but we would humbly submit to him and we would realize that Christ is enough. Can we do that this morning? God help us, let's pray. Jesus,
thank you for the grace that you've given us through your son.